rather shape up or gear if you've let all the fans down. Can we not lock this? It's a fact. I am not playing mind games. I am talking about facts. I always said if I was Aladicci, I would probably say I was more of a tactical genius. The answer questions I have about religious, politics, uh, health, you know, sexual uh, problems. Look at his face! Just look at his face! None of you except for those two have done anything to justify the money that you earn. None of you! Disgrace! And I suggest you shut up and show more football. Yes, you're very welcome along to Team 33, the football happy hour here in Off the Ball. End of call here with you up until about 10 o'clock this evening. 53106 is the text number if you want to get in touch, or you can tweet us at Team 33. That's all spelled out in words. Colm Buig is in studio with me. Colm, how are you getting on? Ender, greetings. I was going to start this and say it's great to be back in studio with you and see you in the flesh again. But I don't know how many times I can do that on the show without it becoming repetitive. No, I think everyone wants to hear that in depth for the next hour. We actually did an in-studio show together, but it wasn't uh, on video. And it was right when, uh, around the time when Ralph Ragnick was appointed, you chose. Yeah, we might uh, might have a look at that again and return to that subject later on. Will O'Callaghan is on the line as well. Will, how are you getting on? Yeah, not too bad. Uh, Delighted to be part of this happy hour where it seems the drinks run ended today. Well, yeah, I don't know. As this is going out on radio, it might actually be happier. I don't know. I'm not not sure what's happening later on, but who who knows? As uh, the radio listeners will know at this point, we're not live. We are pre-recording this show, but we're we're here until ten o'clock, regardless. So we'll we'll keep you uh, keep you company up until then. I want to start with a piece that has appeared on the Athletic uh, this morning. It's by Simon Hughes, who's a, a Liverpool correspondent for the the Athletic, and it's all about Cork. So I can't not talk about this with the man sitting beside me, Colin Buick here. I will read the opening paragraph and it's, I think it sort of sums up uh, the entire piece. Towards the end of 1990, a teenage Roy Keane returned to the north side of Cork and went into a pub dressed in a leather jacket. He had not long signed for Nottingham Forest and he was doing well. He was not a hero yet, but his reputation was growing. This did not matter to a group of lads having a drink at the bar they saw what he was wearing and turned his back. I think most people who have left the, left the countryside in Ireland, gone to Dublin and come back wearing something fanciful has experienced exactly what Roy Keane experienced at that point. Yeah, I think he used to get into quite a lot of trouble when he came back in the early to mid-90s, certainly when he was breaking through in Nottingham Forest and then when he got his uh, British transfer record to Manchester United, it definitely got worse at that point. Um, I think I know the spots he used to go to. Like, I mean, it's an unnamed... Uh, venue in the article but I'm fairly certain where it was and I know that he got a fair bit of trouble there but in fairness to the guy just like his character he just kept coming back for more and he loved going home and actually I think the reason he well he speaks so warmly about Brian Clough for so many reasons but one of them was that Clough used to regularly allow him to go home because Keane suffered from homesickness at the start you can't imagine Keane having a lot of sympathy for players who suffered with homesickness but he did and went back a lot at weekends and Clough you know wished him well on a Friday and said just be back here uh, the other side of the weekend and that's exactly what happened with that relationship and Keane was Forrest's best player in a very troubling time for the club but yeah it's well known around Cork that he got into a lot of trouble uh, most of it uh, wasn't started by him Yeah the issue with Roy Keane is that once you start talking about him it's quite difficult to stop talking about him but we're not going to spend the next half an hour talking about him because the piece isn't about him <coughs> it's actually about Cuevin Kelleher who's obviously doing quite well at Liverpool right now banging on Alisson's door to be the first choice goalkeeper has been 
the first choice in the Cups, which is probably why Simon Hughes is writing about this, because we could could it be about to see a Cork player, young Irishman, lead Liverpool out this weekend in a, in a final. And, I mean, listen, it's the Carabao Cup, it's not the FA Cup, it's not the Champions League, but it is a big competition, and, and Jurgen Klopp has shown a lot of faith in him. Is there a sense that Cueven Keller could be the next big Cork footballer in terms of the long tradition of of Cork footballers playing for the Republic of Ireland? I would say to you 100% yes if it wasn't for his position. And the problem is he's not first choice for club our country at the moment. But we're talking right now and I'm sure his profile will grow. Um, I think it will help enormously if they if Liverpool actually win the cup this weekend and either he keeps a clean sheet or he plays well which you completely back him to do. But luckily uh, from a Republic of Ireland point of view we just have a brilliant array of talent and goal um, at the moment. So that's brilliant. And with Liverpool as long as Alisson stays and he ha- he isn't injured or has a long-term suspension or a catastrophic loss of form, he's not going to break into the Liverpool team. Mm. He's going to play sporadically. Um, Jurgen Klopp and everybody at Liverpool seems to love him. It was brilliant to see him in goal at Stamford Bridge for that brilliant two-all draw uh, against Chelsea in the Premier League just before the Africa Cup of Nations and to see him play so well in that match despite conceding two goals, which I don't think he had much chance with either of them. Yeah, Kovacic is one of those goals, wasn't it? It was like one of the goals of the season. Yeah, it was so a, he um, screamer. he did really well, and it was just brilliant to see an Irish player playing at that level because it's been so long since we've seen that. And that's to answer your question, why I think he's absolutely a, a Cork star of the future. I just hope that he plays enough for people to appreciate him. Yeah, it's such a bizarre situation where yeah. we're sitting here with a goalkeeper who's about to play in a Carabao Cup final against Chelsea, and the player who is Ireland's number one goalkeeper is playing for Portsmouth in in, in a lower division and warranted and, and warranted, warranted as yeah. well because Gavin Bazunu has been absolutely Excellent. phenomenal for Ireland when he's played and he's been absolutely brilliant for Portsmouth and we know that he's going to play at a bigger level and we know he's going to play at a higher level but the difference between them is that one went on loan to a senior club and one stayed where he is and is still fighting for his position well it's you know, it's it's almost you know typical Ireland here, where we need a striker, we need a goal scorer, we need probably need a couple more midfielders. But what we're stuck with are two brilliant young goalkeepers who are going to fight for this position. Uh, in terms of Kevin Callagher, do you think he should win whatever he can with Liverpool this season, and then potentially force a move, regardless of whether Liverpool want to keep him or not? No, I look. I can totally understand Quiven Kelleher's position at Liverpool currently and how he sees himself fitting in. You've got Jurgen Klopp this week speaking up about how much they want to keep Quiven Kelleher, which is why they've made him the cup goalkeeper and very much the defined number two this season at Liverpool. Because on the occasions where Allison has not been able to play in the Champions League a couple of times in the Premier League and also in the cup competitions where we've had Kelleher playing for Liverpool exclusively this season. He has performed really well. He's a very good modern goalkeeper as well, where his distribution and work with his feet are in the very, very highest percentile, even within the goalkeepers that are in the Premier League. His distribution is excellent. You combine that with his shot stopping and the experience that he's gaining currently at Liverpool. Because I was at the press conference uh, back in the autumn where Keller was asked about the situation with Bizunu, where he has gone one direction, which is to go down the leagues and get himself experience at Rochdale and at Portsmouth and to build up that experience. While Kelleher has decided to stay at Anfield, to wait his chance, to learn from the players who are around him. And Kelleher made the point. It's like, I am learning from Robertson, from Virgil van Dijk, from Allison. 
every single day at Liverpool. He seems to have a really good relationship with the coaching staff who are there. A goalkeeper's career tends to be a little bit longer than outfielders as well. So I don't think Keller will be as concerned at still his very youthful age about the fact that he's sitting as backup in the Premier League. This would be more of a concern, I think, if it was an outfield player who was missing out on important years of their development by comparison. So I think Kelleher is happy enough to stay at Liverpool. I think they will have a decision to make, though, say after next season, because I'm sure he would be comfortable enough to stay around next season, playing the cup competitions, particularly, as you say, if he wins a Carabao Cup medal uh, this coming weekend, it makes it all that more sweeter because he will have been the number one goalkeeper for that competition. It's probably next year that he has to make a decision on whether he wants to go out on loan. And like Bazunu, by his own admission as well, says that he is an interesting conversation to have with Manchester City this coming summer too. Where do they see him fitting in? Because they're sitting behind arguably the two best goalkeepers in the Premier League in Allison and Ederson. It's very unlikely, as much as we like our two Republic of Ireland keepers who are very much to the fore, that they're going to get much first-team action. And then there has to just be a clear pathway from the club as to where they want to go. I think it's worth mentioning as well, because Kelleher would have probably been Ireland's number one for the last year or so if he hadn't been, I think he was sick as opposed to unfit, ahead of the game against Serbia, where he could have played away from home as opposed to Mark Travers. Then who knows? Keller could have had a good game. Maybe he gets in ahead of Bizunu and Travers, and we're talking about him as number one at this stage. But Mark Travers has recovered well from that unfortunate night that he had there where Bazunu got in the next night. That actually Travers has been playing some good club football since. So I wouldn't totally write off Travers making this a three-way competition for the Irish number one shirt over the next few seasons as well. Yeah, well, that's the thing. Travers could also be a Premier League goalkeeper by this time next year. So I, I think the the route for Kelleher is probably going to be a little bit longer but it could eventually lead to a more lucrative position I mean if you think to uh, say Lucas Fabianski who was Chesney's number two at Arsenal for so many years and then suddenly you know Chesney makes a couple of mistakes Fabianski gets in there but eventually he gets a move away to a different club and his stars because suddenly people are seeing okay this guy's actually a really really good goalkeeper and has been a number one goalkeeper now for a good Premier League club for a number of years so potentially that's what's Alice, what uh, Kelleher's going to do maybe he's not going to be Liverpool's goalkeeper yeah. for number one goalkeeper ever but he could eventually lead to be a, a very solid Premier yeah. League goalkeeper regardless but your original question was is he going to be a star of a, you know of a Cork sportsman and for Ireland as well and I have no doubt that he'll be a solid goalkeeper who'll have a very good professional career. But I'm I have higher hopes for him again. Okay. Like, and he could be absolutely excellent at a, at a world level. We just don't, from what we've seen of him, we just don't know that for certain. But we've seen glimpses of it, so we need to see it for sure. Well, Do you know he started off as a striker until he was thirteen? Surprise me, banging in the goals, yeah. and then he went in goal because there was a shortage for his club, Ringmahan Rangers in Cork. The idea of pigeonholing a, a, a young player of that age into a certain position, it's just, it's so nonsensical at that point. They had no idea where they were going to yeah. end up. How many, how many wing-backs or right-backs have you heard was an exceptional striker in his younger age? And you eventually just said... Troy King was a striker. Exactly. But, he, uh, but Kelleher's only been in goal for 10 years of his entire life. Well, he's doing quite well for those 10 years. Oh, but you're doing it 23. Yeah. 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 That's uh, the question I, I ask everyone tonight. I think I was working in here. I'm still working in here. Yeah. <laughs> um, let's move on because I guess the, the next point is that Keller is playing in a, a final this weekend, the Carabao Cup final. Previously, the Milk Cup final. Also, the Coca-Cola Cup final. Worthington the, Cup. It, it'll always be the Carling Cup final to me, yeah. personally. Um, but it's the Carabao Cup final. It's Tuchel against Klopp, protege against uh, leader or, you know, whatever you want to call him. Um, master. Master. Master against... T- I, don't, I, don't, I don't know what I'm trying to say here. But Tuchel is level now, essentially level with Klopp. He's not really, you know, you can't really say 
it's you know master against apprentice. That's the saying, master against apprentice. Because Tuchel has won a Champions League, he's won several cups now with Chelsea. At this point, he is a super manager as he is, and this is a difficult one for him. I think this is a probably the most difficult final that he's faced in his time at Chelsea because of the Lukaku situation and the other injuries that he has. The history of making big calls for finals has not been kind to Premier League managers. Think back to the Hurricane situation with Pochettino in the Champions League final. He played Hurricane, there was the wrong move. Pep dropped Rodri and went all out attack a couple of years ago. Completely backfired, just got into his own head. Will does Tuchel play Lukaku here despite all the evidence facing that facing against him that Chelsea are a better side without him? Yeah, I'm not sure why he would change from what played midweek because it worked pretty well against Lille to have, you know, Hakim Ziyech coming over from one side. I know he picked up a knock in the second half, but it seems he's going to be okay to play at Wembley on Sunday. Pulisic on the left-hand side, who took his goal really well. And then Kai Havertz just as the false nine to drag defenders around. Again, like Kai Havertz is such a big game player. Scores a winner in a Champions League final. Uh, scored the winner recently in the Club World Cup final. Havertz has never let them down when he played through the middle. I know the idea was that they wanted to get Lukaku and he was going to be the quote-unquote final piece of the jigsaw that would allow Chelsea to play maybe in a slightly different way and to be able to get the ball up to him and for him to be more of a pure finisher. But you can't forget the game of seven touches against Crystal Palace two weeks ago now where Lukaku looked entirely disinterested. And I thought there was some good shielding used by Thomas Tuchel afterwards because when he went to his press conference on the Monday ahead of the game against Lille, he defended Lukaku entirely and almost said, it's my fault for asking him to do too much defensively and we've been changing around our shape and Romelu has been affected by this and it's not entirely his fault. And then quietly, he just drops Romelu Lukaku for the game against Lille on Tuesday. So if you were going on the form of the players and what they did midweek, I think Chelsea would stick as close to the starting eleven that they played against Lille as they possibly can. It, that looked like if Chelsea were picking their best eleven currently on form, that's the team that you would pick. And then we have to wait and see what Kovacic's injury is like and whether Hakim Ziyech can start. But so now you feel, Colm, I don't really see why he would bring Lukaku back in here. No, they're more fluid without him. You can't, the you can't carry a player like Lukaku. Well, I know. I like. I, I at the same time though, I'd be keen enough to defend Lukaku because when he is on form. He's unbelievable. And hes it's actually easy to forget that because I feel with Lukaku, when he's bad, he's rotten. There's no subtlety to his uh, poor play. And like Will alluded to it there, seven touches against Crystal Palace. Jamie Vardy had nine touches against Crystal Palace at Setters Park a few years ago. But Vardy did substantial damage with those touches, whereas Lukaku was anonymous. And that's the problem with him. When he's brilliant, he's almost untouchable at number nine level. In terms of, I'm not saying the modern football because it was only last season that he was ripping it up in Inter. But I just think he's uh, he's essentially dispensable. Yeah. That's what it comes down to. And Tuchel knows that. And I think Lukaku knows that. And I think that's why Lukaku's massively regretted this career decision. He wanted to go back. He had unfinished business at Chelsea. Started very well. Scored at the Emirates Stadium. But he literally came out and said, you know, I can have alluded to the fact I've made a mistake here. And Tuchel's not that bothered about him. I watched the Lille match. It was the most convincing pretty dull last 16-2-0 win Lille were handy in bits and pieces but Chelsea were just in complete control because every outfield player was in sync with each other and I feel a bit for Lukaku because mm. he's an outstanding striker but the problem with him is that his options of elite clubs are kind of dying out because football's kind of going away from his style of play a bit or unlike say Sergio Aguero in the first few years with Manchester City under Pep Guardiola 
I don't know if Lukaku's able to adapt his game sufficiently to the manager's liking, unlike Aguero was able to do. Yeah, I think Lukaku That's... would be class for Burnley. <laughs> Oof. What? Do you know what was, what was forgotten though, lads, back in December when Lukaku gave that fairly explosive interview to Sky Italia and the line that pretty much came out was that Romelu Lukaku regrets leaving Inter and wants to go back to Inter and everything kind of came focused around the transfer. Yeah. Was that Lukaku had also spoken fairly extensively in that interview about the fact that he wasn't enjoying playing in Thomas Tuchel's system and that was somewhat overlooked because the sexier headline is because he wants to leave the club. But that was kind of not really even addressed a huge amount of the time that Lukaku feels he's not getting the most out of himself as part of Tuchel's tactical system. Like Conte clearly set the team up last year to get the most out of Lukaku and Latar Martinez. And Lukaku had a lot of freedom to move around and Inter were all about trying to get the ball up to Lukaku and getting crosses into the box. The way that Thomas Tuchel likes to play football, it would seem, does not suit Romelu Lukaku despite his individual talent. No, it doesn't. And... On the opposite scale, you've got Havertz, who is very suited to the system and can do other things other than be a focal point up front. Gary Lineker compared him to Hoddle, Glenn Hoddle. Um, ha- during, yeah, during he the week, compared he said, Havertz to Hoddle. Havertz to Hoddle, saying that he seems to glide across Jeez. the ground. Different position, uh, but Hoddle-esque in some ways. Mash Rushton replied to that saying, quite Berbatoffy to me. Which I don't know. It's uh, it's gone a long way to compare. Two massive Havertz compliments to, to Havertz, to yeah. especially the Hoddle. Oh, Hoddle was unbelievable. I think the Berbatov one's a bigger. Uh, no, I know. I I Hoddle was transformational the way he played football. He's way ahead of his time. Yeah. I think Havertz is good, but you mentioned stand out to me that much. You mentioned the Lille game during the week yeah. for Chelsea in the Champions League. I actually tweeted about this to ask for a couple of suggestions. I'm not sure if you saw it. Because Bernardo Sanchez was playing in the midfield oh, for Leeds, and he was yeah. really good. He was he was actually yeah. Leeds' best player by a far yeah. by a mile. But I always get that with with Bernardo Sanchez. Like I, I suddenly turn on a random football match, and there he is playing for that team, and he, he's that guy. He's a that guy in football. So uh, not to be confused with that man, which is an entirely different thing. Because uh, you know that's what you are if you're. If you're a Glenn Murray who you, you score loads of goals for a relegation candidate team, you're, oh, that man again, Glenn Murray. Yeah. Whereas that guy is the guy you point at a TV and say, oh, there's Renato Sanchez. I didn't know he played for Lille. Who's your that guy? Adult Rat. Oh, that's a good one. He played. Sometimes I forget will, that he will played Will he play centre mid for Benfica against Ajax in the Champions League midweek in a knockout Champions League? Yeah, Did you really text good. me about that? Or no, I think no, other, no. other people may have texted me. I think me everyone about texted that, you yeah. about it because that's news. Oh no! I sent the text myself. I actually text my friends to say Adelta Rap <laughs> is is playing uh, for Benfica. Right made it, uh, for Benfica in a two-all draw against Ajax in the Champions League. I'm so proud of him. That guy was going nowhere fast <laughs> in his career. I look at him now like the greatest straight streets, up in the LinkedIn. The greatest streets will not forget a player of the <laughs> Premier League era. It's unbelievable. Adelta Rap. You know another one as well. I associate Kenwin Jones only seemed to play for uh, clubs that wore red and white stripes. Okay. Did he play for all the three red and white for Sunderland. Stoke, Sunderland, Southampton. Is that right? I can't remember him at Southampton, but he definitely played for Stoke. I'm and pretty certain he played for Southampton. Raji Nyangolan was another one. Hatim Ben Arfa, another name thrown out by somebody who was uh, replying to it. Was he, uh, played Victor, he, he came on the other day, Ben Arfa for someone. I think he's playing in France at the minute. Um, Victor Moses is another player that I think, you know, he, j- he randomly Just turns randomly up, turn up in, in certain games. Yeah. Will, any suggestions for this? Um, I don't know about the, the random side to it but I'm kind of thinking of there are loads of players who've gone around clubs and you're just wondering how it happened Kevin Prince-Boateng being one that would definitely oh, yeah. jump to mind here Las, uh, Las Palmas 
Yeah, like he he was basically went all over the place, and then he still ends up playing for AC Milan and Barcelona as part of his career as well, while going to smaller clubs. It's almost like when they investigate the CV of Ronaldo Sanchez, because all expectation is look, Lille aren't getting back into the Champions League for next year based on their form in the French league this year. That Sanchez, who missed out in his move last year when there was a big exodus, will probably leave this year and will probably go to a big European club is that you look at his CV and Swansea is just going to stick out in the middle of this because mm. you'll go, well, he won a French league in Lille. He played for Bayern Munich. He played for Benfica. He's probably going to play for one of the big Spanish clubs next season. And the next thing, an uninspired loan move to Swansea is right there in the middle of the CV uh, where people so go, true. did he really play for Swansea at some point? That was when Paul Clement was managing. Yeah, yeah. And he knew Paul, him. Paul Clement. <laughs> <laughs> he bought him in. Ben Arfa plays for Lille, of course. Yeah. So he came yeah. on the other day against Chelsea. And Kenwin Jones did play for all three. Well, that's so there you there go. You go. Um, I would throw before we move on to a, an actual t- topic of conversation. Uh, Arturo Vidal is another one that I would throw into the the list. He's too big, Bayer, but he's played. He, he's like he's played for everyone. Big, he's he's he? the same thing, but for all the super clubs. <laughs> he's played for Leverkusen, who were a big club when he was playing for them. Juve, Bayern Munich, Barcelona, Inter Milan. No, he doesn't touch Christian Vieri, who was the ultimate played for everybody good. Ever. and also way more Australian than I thought he ever was like proper Aussie accent yeah. but plays for Italy by the way this is a repeat this League Cup final this weekend of the 2005 showdown which which Chelsea won 3-2 Jose Mourinho's first trophy as Chelsea manager who scored the winner for Chelsea? Drogba? no Drogba's got, got the second no one of uh, their many forgotten strikers in the Roma, Roman Abramovich era oh Ooh. right there's a, there's, a, there's a number of one Adrian no, not Musu. Crespo? No. He played an, in their time, though. What you Crespo was at Milan that season, wasn't he? That's right, actually. But he would have played around that year. He was one of the first uh, tranche of signings. Shevchenko? Uh. No, came from PSV Eindhoven. You're going to kick yourselves now. He's a f- classic football manager player. God, I'm coming on. Will I tell you? Go on, Colin. Matea Kesman. Oh, yeah. And I, don't, I don't remember his career at all. Rundled it in, yeah. And again, classic again, a, a player who they had to set a penalty up for to get him off the kind of scoring yeah. run. Yeah, he's yeah, <laughs> Diego Forlan. Yeah, yeah, he couldn't score for ages. And Liverpool's second goal scored that day was the only goal he ever scored at Liverpool. Midfielder, striker. Midfielder, very underwhelming career. Had one season at Liverpool, signed from Real Madrid. Nunes? Yes, Antonio Nunes. Yeah. Do you remember him? He was a make weight in the Michael Owen deal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Of fun facts shall, shall we move on to an actual conversation rather whoa, than whoa, whoa. right? Let's uh, let's move on to the shirt that you're wearing, Manchester United. You're wearing a, a classical jacket. Um, I'm describing it. it to the radio yeah. listeners now. The blue one that everyone knows about, the, all the stars all all over it. Ralph Ragnick has sort of great segue. Um, he sort of figured his way through this United system at the minute. He yeah. seems to be learning what's going wrong and solving the issues slowly it's been uninspiring it hasn't been fun it's been pretty miserable but it seems like he knows what's happening it seems like he knows the players that he wants and does not want at the club should he move into a role of more authority and it seems like he has the power now it does seem like the public opinion has turned against these United players Mm. because of the leaks and people are on the side of Ralph Ragnick there was reports that Anthony Alanga, Jin Sancho are the only players that he would yeah. keep if he was... Uh, well, they buy into a system. Yeah, yeah. because, I mean, they, they look like they're, they are buying yeah. into a system. And the rest, he's not too pushed on. Victor Lindelof playing right back tells you a lot about what Ragnick thinks 
mm. about Aaron Wan-Bissaka and about Dallow as well. There's a lot going on. There's a lot to fix. Do you think the tide's turning now? Do you think United are going to be able to fix it with Ragnick at the helm? It totally depends. Not as manager, do. but as some sort of advisor. It's all determined what they do in the summer. Because the problem is at the moment, what do we know? End of February, nobody knows what's going to happen in the summer. Nobody. There's there's a few crucial players out of contract. There are even more players who have a year left in their contract. Um, Ralph Ragnick, by all accounts, doesn't know what role he's going to fulfil in the consultancy capacity if he does leave his manager. And we ultimately don't know who's going to be the manager, neither do the players. So it's a very strange uh, limbo phase that Manchester United are currently in. Um, and at the same time, I give uh, Ralph Reinick huge credit because he has shorn up United considerably since he came in. Look, nobody became a United fan because of their tight defence. So it's not exactly an exciting era for United at the moment. But they're a lot more solid. Uh, they're still relying too much on David De Gea, but I don't think he really had to make a save against Atletico the other, the other night. Uh, Atletico should have won the game, but they didn't. And there is still a chance of a of a goal every time United play. Like as as we've seen, they've pretty. I think they've scored in every match. I think they have under Ragnick. But it's not exactly exciting. The thing with it is, you've actually touched on it there, and that it's about time that the anger turned on the players. I like as a United fan, like the, I think they're a very unlikable bunch. I like Paul Pogba. I, I really like Pogba. I I, I actually do too. I, I really I, see the good side of Pogba. He you, frustrates me, but I see the good side of him. You are seeing the difference that he makes to the team. I really in like the Pogba. last performances, uh, even though he is frustrating. Even yeah. though you know he he's, he goes on hot streaks, the difference that he makes to the midfield is night and day. But he should go, and he will yeah. go for himself. Uh, I love Jaden Sancho. I think he's probably United's best player, and Alang is great. But I can't stand Bruno Fernandez. I just I can't stand his attitude. And he's gesticulating. I just, I, I can't watch him. He reminds me a bit of uh, Robbie Keane at times in an Ireland shirt towards the end. Keane used to be murdered for gesticulating to other players. And um, it's just, I find it very difficult to watch him. I think Ronaldo is like, I think that project needs to just end for everybody concerned. Uh, there's just a lot of problems at that club. Like, and a lot of players I think need to leave. And I give huge credit to Ragnick. I don't think at the same time in five years time we're going to look back and think, um, Geez, that was a great era when he was manager. And we might even forget he was manager, but I think the work he's doing now is crucial if they get the appointment right in the summer. Yeah. And that's that's the crucial part of it. I think it depends what role he goes into as well. Because if he, if he does go into a director of football role, he has been inside the dressing room. He's already identified the players that he wants and doesn't want the club. Yeah. And ultimately, that will be his role. It will be deciding who comes in, the overall, overall philosophy of the club, who comes in, who goes out, who they get rid of, and I think he's quickly identified who he wants to get rid of. So that can be good for United if he does move into it. But yeah. again, it's so bizarre that he doesn't himself know what hap- what's happening next year. Well, yeah. Maybe he does and he's just being coy about it, but it seems like they have no idea. But the, the other problem is Fernandez and Ronaldo are still very effective players and Fernandez is usually involved in anything good to United. It's their attitude is the problem. That's yeah. what I mean. A lot of talent there. It's the attitude is the issue. Yeah. Roy Keane, Gary Neville and a couple of other pundits are very on the side of United need a personality here, Will, because like as good as Ralph Ragnick has been, the uninspiring element is just down to his, I don't know, his, the personality of, of Ralph Ragnick. He's very straightforward, very straight talking, but he's not what you would call a charismatic leader. One name that springs to mind for somebody has, who has gone into a club and been an immediate personality, has strong will, has strong character, and is a very good modern manager, is the manager that they're coming up against at the minute in Diego Simeone. 
is is he a name that United should be going for here and instead of a Pochettino who you know may not have the strength of will uh, quote unquote to take the reins and get rid of the players that they don't need and actually be that personality to take United forward well the big question about Diego Simeone is are Manchester United fans accepting of the type of football that Diego Simeone would bring to Old Trafford maybe they are because of how expectations have changed for United over the last couple of years but if there is this mythic idea out there of playing Alex Ferguson-style counter-attacking, exciting football, you're unlikely to get that with Diego Simeone, who sets up so safety first. And this season, he's been kind of forced into change because of dropping form of some players, because of the type of players they have. I never would have imagined that Diego Simeone would have went into a round of 16 game, for example, with two players who effectively dropped back as number 10s in Joe Felix and in Correa. But that's what they did. And it was quite bizarre seeing Manchester United only having Fred as an anchor in their midfield when Atletico's two most dangerous attackers were effectively running into that zone throughout the game. But Simeone is likely to be available. It really feels like he's into his last uh, throws with Atletico Madrid. They're in a real fight to try and get into the top four in La Liga. You know, taking that game into account midweek, it's four wins in their last eight in all competitions. Their bad run of form has come at a bad time when Barcelona have hit form and got into the top four, beating Atletico a couple of weeks on the way to get there. There's likely to be three managers that Manchester United will be interested in this summer realistically. Unless Pochettino wins the Champions League, and as it works out, it could happen with Paris Saint-Germain in Paris after the move of the Champions League final. Unless Pochettino wins the Champions League, he's likely to leave PSG because there's well-documented issues he's had with Leonardo, their sporting director. You've Conte, based on his comments coming out of the Tottenham game against Burnley, is fairly unlikely, it would seem, to stay around at Tottenham for too long, whether that's a decision made by Tottenham or a decision made by Conte. He looked entirely ready to walk out the door even after that game midweek. And then you've got Diego Simeone, who are probably going to be the three most high-profile managers that are available. I don't know if Simeone has ever shown any great interest in managing in England. He's always mentioned the fact that he would like to go back to another of his former clubs and manage them at some point, and that's Inter Milan. I think Inter are unlikely to have a vacancy this coming summer, but possibly, you know, say if Simeone was take a year out, is there a chance in the summer of 2023 that they might go for Diego Simeone and bring back one of their favourite mm. players to be the manager at the San Siro? Again, I just don't know. Simeone is a little bit of a punt if they're going from, given the style of football, um, not sure what his English is like or what his desire will be to manage Manchester United. But chances are the Argentine is going to need a job this summer. Well, I think that's one of the issues is that Simeone doesn't actually speak English and uh, that's one of the issues he would have with coming to uh, a club like United but uh, I guess the, you mentioned something there about the Alex Ferguson style of football the United way does not exist it's not a thing it's said to be a thing but it's not United play the brand of football that Alex Ferguson played and it, that changed over time with Simeone you've got a, pl- a proven manager who has done it at a big club he's won multiple trophies and United don't need an Alex Ferguson. They're still striving for that 20-year manager stint. They need a manager to come in and win a trophy. That's what United need. And I think Simeone would be able to do that. But whether he's the man for United or not is uh, another story. We should talk about Spurs and about Conte as well because he had some fairly explosive things to say in his press conference after the Burnley defeat at the weekend. So we'll take a quick break and then we'll come back with that just after these. Team 33. This is OTB Sports Radio. Now you're welcome back to Team 33. End a call here with you up until about 10 o'clock this evening. Con Buig is with me, as is Will O'Callaghan, as we work through the biggest stories in the Premier League and across football as well. It was a big Champions League week, so we'll, we'll finish on that. But Antonio Conte, 
very explosive stuff in his press conference against Burnley, almost questioning his entire life in this this space of thirty to forty seconds, and it was it was almost as if he didn't believe that this was going to be reported and <laughs> be on worldwide news for the next twenty four hours or so. Burnley can do that to you. Yeah. Burnley can break you as a manager. <laughs> it just felt like Conte was a little bit broken after that. Or he is a very good actor who knows what he's doing and is trying to force Daniel Levy's hand here. Which is it? I don't think he's um, an actor. I think that was all legitimate. But I think the thing with Conte is he doesn't care how he comes across. True. He is enough. Uh, he knows, his, his reputation is strong enough in the game that he, I think, feels free that to be able to speak openly about how he feels. And ultimately, it comes down to finance too. You know, the man doesn't need any money. So if he walks away, it's fine. Look, he turned him down in the summer. I think people forget about this. He never really wanted to go there anyway. But since uh, Manchester United turned him down, he felt uh, a bit of retribution was on the cards and he took over at Spurs. So um, as you know, with Spurs being one of United's rivals, I, was, I wasn't too uh, displeased that he took the Spurs job because I ultimately didn't think he wanted it. And my brother-in-law's uh, Spurs season ticket holder, and I was texting him after the Burnley result uh, midweek which was in the aftermath, of course, of the 3-2 win at Manchester City. And I just said, Spurs are strange. And he was like, yeah, this is classic Spurs. And then he texted back a couple of hours later and he says, I think we've broken Conte. And this would be a pretty mild-mannered Spurs fan who was quite patient. And he's like, I don't think he wants to stay here. And I think if he could, I don't I think he was joking. I think if he could, he'd walk away. And if, he, if, if it ensured that he didn't lose out too much financially, I think he'd just go. And I think he's just counting down the days to the summer. I don't well, think he ultimately wants to be there I don't think he ever wanted to be there I don't think he wanted to be there and it's sort of a running theme with Conte at Spurs because I mean he came in did pretty well first couple of weeks and then he did an interview with Sky where he said that the job is quite big a lot bigger than he expected there's a lot going on in the dressing room yeah. that's causing issues he doesn't like the players so that happened then a couple of weeks come by there seems to be a little bit of progress then the interview with Sky Italia comes out now this is happening it does seem like he's at the end of his tether the Spursy thing is a weird one right because mm. I mean everyone knows the joke and it sort of stems from Roy Keane's you know lads at Spurs and Spurs are notorious for you know getting your hopes up and killing it immediately the next week that seems to be what's happening it just seems like to be like a, a psychological thing with them that no matter what the manager, no matter what the team, they just end up disappointing you in the end. Will, will is is Conte going to leave here? Is he going to walk? I, it seems like it seems to me he's laying his cards on the table. He's saying this isn't me. You know, the, it's it's not the fact that I just can't get these players into order. This is the club. This is the players that I'm working with. And it seems like it almost seems like the job is a little bit too big for him because he has never managed a club like this before. You know, he's he's always been a super club, a big title-chasing club. Tottenham just aren't that and they do struggle to keep in touch with Liverpool and City. Well, look, alarm bells were ringing the moment that Antonio Conte decided to take the Tottenham job mid-season because when he had the conversations with them in the summer, it seemed very clear that Antonio Conte was not buying into the project that Spurs were putting out in front of him. You're going into a club where they're notoriously well-run, but also miserly well-run. This has been Daniel Levy's way of doing things. You know, we're all familiar with the fact that Tottenham are more than happy to wait until very late in the transfer window to try and snag a bargain, as opposed to trying to get a player in who can be settled before the start of the season. They have no problem when it comes to players 
who want out to run it right down to the end of the window to try and extract the biggest possible price for them, even if it might affect the club by not getting that transfer business done in time. You know, letting Christian Eriksen leave mid-season. We remember it isn't too long ago, back in lockdown, lads, when we were watching the Amazon documentary and, you know, marvelling at some of the decisions that Spurs were making behind the scenes and wondering how Jose Mourinho was almost putting up with some of it. Well, Antonio Conte has shown throughout his career that he will not put up with things not being done his way. And he left Inter Milan after leading to a first Serie A title in a decade in the summer because he felt that Inter Milan were not keeping the players that he needed for this season and weren't being ambitious enough in the transfer market to try and push on from last year. So Antonio Conte was very unlikely to suffer fools easily once he went in. And he would have been expecting instant results and to be getting Tottenham Hotspur back up into the Champions League places straight away. And like, it has gone well in some games. Like, look at the way that Tottenham played and the resilience that they showed against Manchester City to come back and secure that victory at the weekend. And they almost looked entirely justified in keeping Harry Kane with the way that he played against Manchester City at the weekend. The first thing that came into my mind was... Why did Manchester City buy out Jack Grealish's uh, payout clause and spend 100 million of the Queen's pounds to get him in when they could have potentially added, say, 50 million onto that and got Harry Kane and solved all of their striking problems in one go? But at the moment, Tottenham have got probably two players who are worthy of being inside the top four, Sun Heung-min and Harry Kane. they got to keep hold of them. And it seems very difficult that they're going to keep hold of Antonio Conte. And you'd have to wonder where next for Spurs after this, because Daniel Levy has gone in the post-Pochettina era to, you know, very classical, proven manager in Jose Mourinho to a very fashionable manager in making the appointment uh, from Wolves last year. And it doesn't quite work out for Espirito Santo. So he goes... And then you go to Antonio Conte, who's meant to be a proven winner, but the proven winner isn't happy with the way the Spurs are doing their business. I'm not entirely sure where actually Spurs go from here, because talking to a few mates of mine after the City game at the weekend who support Tottenham, the first thing they said was, watch us go and drop points against Burnley midweek. I don't think they were necessarily expecting to lose, but the old classic, here's one of the best performances Spurs have put in in two seasons, and then they'll go and mess up next time around. Spurs being Spurs is not a cliche for no reason. Yeah, uh, it's quite hard watching it at times just watching them you know shoot themselves in the foot repeatedly it's look listen Conte's a proven winner he's done it at every club and ultimately what he comes up against is the hierarchy every time it's it's we need to spend money to continue mm. to be great that's generally what goes wrong and you know ultimately he ends up being right in the end um, it seems like Conte has come into this almost expecting Exact the exact same treatment that he gets in the first couple of years at the other clubs that he's been to, and Spurs just won't do that. Yeah. And I think everybody except for Conte seemed to be seen to see that, unless Conte, being quite cynical about this, actually did see it and thought, thought you know, I'll spend seven months here in London, get a nice little payout, I'll continue on with my day, and I'll get another big club Maybe. in a couple of years' time. That's been the most cynical. But we'll move on to. Champions League stuff because it was it was Champions League during the week Europa League Europa Conference League as well Champions League final as of Friday has been moved to Paris uh, from Russia because of the escalating situation with Russia and Ukraine Spartak Moscow are still playing in the Europa League and that just doesn't seem right to me in a way it's look listen football at this point in time is the least of our worries with Russia and what's going on but everybody who has a position of power should be doing everything possible to punish Russia here and 
show them that this is not acceptable and there are repercussions. Spartak Moscow should not be in the competition anymore. Senate were knocked out. If they were still in it, they should be they should be uh, kicked out of it as well. Um, UEFA obviously in a tricky position with Gazprom, but I mean UEFA are going to have to find another sponsor. They just can't continue in this. It's too serious a situation for a club to be put in a situation where RB Leipzig are being put into this position where they're going to have to play Spartak Moscow in a neutral venue and they have the idea of playing a Russian club on their hands while Russia are invading a, a sovereign union. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm I'm really surprised that there hasn't been action taken already. Who played Real Betis last night? Was Zenit. Zenit, yeah. I mean, I can't believe that went ahead. It's bizarre, isn't it? Yeah, the it's the same weird. day that strange. Russia invade cities yeah. that we've all grown familiar with through football because I mean we're talking through this through the form of football most football fans will it's it's the greatest geography lesson yeah. you can possibly get if you're not if you're interested in geography I mean first the the very first thing it's the worst thing that I'm going to say but the very first thing that came to my mind about the Donetsk invasion was I wonder what's going to happen to Shakhtar now as a club but that's just the way that I sort of think about things in football terms it's it's just, it's utterly bizarre that the Zenit were allowed to play in this competition the same day that Russian troops were airstriking Ukraine. I mean, I, I've my prediction would be that they'll now take stock, and there will be an expulsion uh, inputted for the rest of the season. It'll already have been a bit too late because of this week's fixtures, but they have to be seen to do something. But then again, like if you're asking, if you're backing UEFA to do the quote unquote right thing morally and ethically. It's a big bet to make, yeah, and you could lose a lot of money on it. Well, I know it's a different organisation, but it's with FIFA as well. Gianni Infantino was hardly uh, convincing in his yeah, FIFA anyway. If I'm bonding him in together, like yeah. yeah. Um, in terms of international football as well, well, this impacts Ireland's uh, campaign as well because obviously they're in a group with Ukraine. The word at the minute is that the games will be played in a neutral venue against Ukraine. Potentially, if situations escalate to the point where that game can't be fulfilled, Finland will take Ukraine's place because they were behind them uh, when it came to it. Uh, where do you stand on this situation? Well, look, it depends how quickly this situation plays out to probably determine what's going to happen in the Nations League. But I'd be surprised if Ireland's games against Ukraine, should they go ahead in the Nations League, wouldn't be played in Switzerland or played in Germany as opposed to being played in Kiev. But... Look, I think you get into a slippery slope if you start removing teams from competitions based on what their nation state have been involved in in geopolitics. Like, was there not an argument in 2014 when Russia decided to annex uh, parts of Crimea that potentially major sporting events should have been taken away from them, which didn't happen. They ended up having the Winter Olympics in Sochi. And we all know that during the Sochi Games, there was state-sponsored doping by Russia where they saw the value of bringing home multiple medals on home soil and what that does for a state. And they were still allowed to compete in 2016 at the Summer Olympics in Rio de Janeiro, despite the fact what had happened in 2014. And despite all the concerns about Russian doping and 
Russian aggression in Crimea back in 2014. They still hosted the FIFA World Cup in 2018, at which point Gianni Infantino was able to get a medal of friendship from Russia as part of the ceremony. They were able to put on a good show. Plenty of people went to Russia and said they had a fantastic time in the few weeks that summer that they had spent there during the 2018 World Cup. And it just goes to show the power of sport within politics and within geopolitics as well. So you could argue that all of this is tremendously intertwined but why step in and kick out Zenit or kick out Spartak Moscow now when major sporting organizations didn't move when there was previous aggression back in 2008 or in 2014? It's a, it's a slippery slope yeah. if you start to do this. Yeah, well, you're you're also talking, I mean, this, this is why we need to talk about, because you see fans constantly bringing it up on social media. It's the manner of the this football support now. This is why we need to talk about Newcastle. This is why we need to talk about these situations and address them at the time. Because, I mean, Saudi Arabia are currently involved in a bombing campaign in Yemen that has horrendous consequences for the people in that country and have been doing so for 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 years now, yet Newcastle are owned by a Saudi regime. Same with Chelsea. You know, everybody knows the connections between Roman Abramovich and the Russian regime. There's pictures of Roman Abramovich with Putin sitting next to him at a desk. They are friends, they know each other well. He is a key instigator with the Russian uh, state. And you know that's what's being thrown on in the British Parliament at the minute, what's going to happen to Chelsea, for example, who are owned by a Russian oligarch. So there's a lot of consequences that need to be unfurled here. But I guess as much as talking doesn't really solve anything, it is why we should be highlighting these things. No, but there, I mean, actions do. Like, Will's point is really valid, right? That, you know, why would you expel teams now when you didn't in 2014 with Crimea? But this time, you have to make an exception because we're on the verge of global war here. Yeah. So you have well, to there take is, a Well, there is precedent for it as well because Yugoslavia was thrown out of the Euros and Denmark took their place eventually yeah. went on to win. The it's not fair on those teams at all. For But they, there has to be a global stand against what we're on the verge of. And I'm not being too dramatic here by following it up by saying before it's too late because before this thing completely escalates and hopefully it will never get to that point. But we just don't know right now when we're sitting here today. Yeah, and look, Spartak Moscow being thrown out of the Euro Europa League is not going to stop this. No, it's it, not, but it's, it's at every it's, step. It's yeah. a step because if you look at the Russian World Cup and look at what's the, the Qatari World Cup this year, the Saudi Gulf situation, people might grow tired of those conversations, but the 2018 World Cup did massive things for Russia in terms of people coming back from it, seeing what Russia was like and, and, and being surprised by how modern and how free it was and how happy the people were. Yeah. And now look where we are. So and that is what sports watching significant does. as well. Lads, the fact that China have just hosted the Winter Olympics. Exactly. There is, there is There's no horrific doubt. stuff happening in China right now. And also no doubt that Russia's current uh, aggression within eastern Ukraine would not have gone ahead without China say so. Like, yeah. th There's no way that Putin won't have spoken to China before deciding to go to Ukraine because he knows that the EU, NATO and the USA are likely to be on the other side of him as they decide to go with these uh, actions within Ukraine currently. He'll say they've been invited in to try and keep the peace. Ukrainian people will say they're being invaded. But Putin would not have brought troops over the border without China at least saying that they weren't going to be aggressive on the other side. And China have just used the Winter Olympics as 
an opportunity to sell themselves to the world just a month ago as well. Yeah, yeah, awful stuff. Um, all we all we can do at the minute, we're not going to solve anything on the show tonight, but our thoughts obviously go out to everybody who's involved on that side of Europe and hopefully will solve itself at some point in the near future. Hopefully it doesn't escalate too much and we'll, we'll see an end to this. But we'll take a quick break here on Team 33 and we'll uh, come back after this. Team 33. This is OTB Sports Radio. Now you're welcome back to Team 33. That is about all we have time for on this evening's show. Colin Buig, nice seeing you again. Cheers, Enda. It's nice being back Thanks in the studio. Yeah. Will, thank you. Pleasure as always, lads. Cheers, Will. We will be back in the same time, same place next week, um, talking some more football. If you're listening on your phone or in uh, the car, if you go on to Twitter Spaces right now, the LOI Late Night should be kicking off on the Off The Ball social channel if you're a League of Ireland fan. That's the place to go every Friday night at 10 o'clock for your uh, debrief of what happened. And if you want to talk about if you're at a League of Ireland game tonight, join your Twitter Spaces, get your thoughts in on the game and... Sure, you might even turn into the next podcaster here on Off The Ball. We'll chat to you in here uh, on Off The Ball in Team 33 next week. Until then, it's not going to fall.